So welcome to another episode of PhDivas. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm your host, Dr. Zain Yao. My co-host is Dr. Liz Wayne, who isn't able to be with us today. But you should follow her on Twitter because to see some of the awesome things that she's doing, she just came back from being an invited speaker in Mexico. So please check out her Twitter for some of the awesome images of the amazing work that she's been doing. So today I am recording um, at the University of British Columbia, which is on the traditional, ancestral, and unsustained territory of the Musqueam people. And I'm, I'm very excited to introduce all of you to two amazing guests and amazing friends today, uh, Kat and Elle. Hi! <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, just a very quick background. So I got to know Kat and Elle as two of the amazing graduate students at UBC in very different departments. And the impetus of bringing them today, on top of them being awesome, is that they actually guest edited the most recent issue of the Capilano Review, which is an issue on blackness, specifically the work of words for black creators. Kat and Elle, uh, thank you so much for being here today. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Okay, I'm going to go first. <laughs> well, hi, my name is Emmanuel, or Elle, or Manny. I have loads of nicknames, which can get very confusing. But I am at the Institute for Social Justice here at UBC. Uh, I'm in my second year of my MA, and I now have a thesis title, maybe, Ooh. tentatively, so we'll, I'll say that, apparently. Mm. <laughs> so it's called Reading the Threat, Imagining Otherwise, Notting Hill Carnival, the London Riots, and the Global Issue of Blackness. So yeah, I'm working on that at the moment. Recently, well, not recently, it was last year, but I co-filmed and edited a film with very dear friend Pedro I can't say his surname, so I'm not going to try. Um, <laughs> such a dear friend. Yeah, yeah, such a girl. dear, dear friend. <laughs> that cat was also in, and that was called Coming to Love. And yeah, I think that's that's the bio for me. What about any personal stuff? Oh. <laughs> like about you? What like, else do I do that's interesting? Uh, personal stuff. Oh, God, I don't even know. Well, you're, oh, like my age? I don't know. <laughs> I'm from London, dance stuff occasionally. I'm from London, England, by the way. When I first came here, I would be like, oh, I'm from London. And they'd be like, oh, you don't sound like you're from London. And I was like, what? <laughs> How? And then I realized that there was a place London, called Ontario. London in yeah. Ontario. Which is yeah. a very different place. I definitely watched a lot of friends do that, like, oh, I'm going to London thing. And people in Canada just be like, oh. And then you say, like, okay, oh, no, okay, London, England. And they're like, oh. <laughs> Well, I am Katrina, or Kat, um, I'm a second year master's student at UBC in the English department. Um, I am not writing a thesis, um, but my work is kind of around um, black cultural production. So I've done a lot of work on Janelle Monae's music um, and her imagining of like incredible Afro-feminist futures. And I'm going to be beginning a PhD at McMaster University in September. Woo! Yes, very exciting. Can't wait to put that doctor on before yeah. I oh book God. my flights for the airplane. Very <laughs> um, yeah, what else do I do besides school? It feels like very little right now because that like end of the master's feeling. But yeah, I'm from the Cayman Islands and British Columbia. Moved around a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of funny to hear also like people that you like know fairly yeah. well also describe themselves and like oh this is how they have chosen to self-identify and represent yeah. themselves in this yes. moment which is sort of a silly aside I'm so excited to hear about the work you're doing I think I'll just start with a very simple question which is how did you guys meet each other from across different departments and what has 
I guess that interdisciplinarity meant for the type of work that you can do together? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree at Dalhousie University in Halifax, and I did combined honors in English and Gender and Women Studies. Um, so when I came to UBC, I didn't want to lose all of that gender studies work. Um, so I took a course in the GRSJ program uh, with Denise Ferreira da Silva, and that is where I met Maddie. Yeah, it's weird. It feels like I always think back at that class, and I'm just so glad that you were in it because it, literally if you weren't in it, we would have probably never met. So, yeah. and, and it's weird because it was like, my first year, like, it was our first year, both of our first years, the first term, literally one of the first classes that I took at UBC. Yeah. And so I think it's quite impressive that we've managed to actually get a friendship out of it, to be honest. Yeah, I feel like through undergraduate classes, you often had, like, class friends, the people mm -hmm. that you sit next to or mm -hmm. that you'd, like, get notes from, but to actually make, like, such a good friend in class was new and wonderful. Yay! Yeah. yeah. Didn't you have you taken any other classes together? Like many now. Conwells. <laughs> I was going to say like I was like yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. We took a <laughs> summer course together at SFU with David Cherry Andy, and then we took another class at UBC with Benoit Andy. So. Yeah, we're just making the rounds of all the black profs in in Canada. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> as many as we can. Oh. We just like yeah. <laughs> I think that's also probably a, a conversation that we should have. In, in general, in conversation that people need to be having in Canada far more. The class that you guys took at SFU, I know, was part of what ended up yes. engendering the special issue for you guys, mm -hmm. which is that there was an amazing confluence of some of the most brilliant minds in black studies, uh, mm -hmm. black creators, who came to Vancouver. And I know that these people mean a, a lot to you. And why not say a little bit about them? Uh, because yeah. their work is so awesome. I think to start with, I think what I find also amazing about how again like how me and Kat came to know each other is I think because and this is something we can also talk more about but I'm sure as many people know like blackness in in Canada is is a strange thing and Indeed. but and yet the relationships that come out of these circumstances are just I think really telling because I met David Terriandi at an event that was partly hosted by Denise Ferreira da Silva and the Social Justice Institute, also in that first term. And we randomly uh, met at, at this event. Yeah, and then I, interestingly enough, I spoke to him and he was like, oh, I'm thinking of making this book for my daughter. And I was like, you should totally do it. And now he's done it, which obviously oh, isn't because oh. of me, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but like, you see how, like, I think that's part of it as well as like, you meet people, you have a relationship with them in this like, really lovely way in like a mentorship way and then you it, that remains and it continues so yeah then we then Kat and I took his class in the summer and then David through his relationships and connections managed to bring Christina Sharp and Dion Brand to Vancouver and the work of words event that the issue um, comes from was partly made from that and yeah um <laughs> Dion Brand in particular was so special for my undergraduate education because I, like I'm sure many people might relate to, I thought I was going to be a science student and then I realized <laughs> I was not. Um, I didn't even know that. Again. Yeah, so I, um, my first year of undergrad, I thought I was going to be in psychology or bio or something, um, but there was a professor, Aaron Wonker, who was teaching a course on contemporary women's poetics. 
and I really needed to take it um, because I loved my first year of class with Aaron, but then it, the way things go with courses, um, someone else ended up teaching it, uh, mm-hmm. Marjorie Stone, but that was the first class where I read Dion Brand's work, mm-hmm. um, and it was so important for me as a young black woman from the Caribbean living in Canada mm-hmm. to be reading the experience of another like black woman from the Caribbean living in Canada and seeing that like I don't know that connection I guess yeah like writing my honors conference paper on Dion Brand's book No Language is Neutral is actually what brought me into an MA program and is keeping me in grad school mm-hmm. like working on her stuff so yeah it was really powerful for me mm-hmm. um, and then yeah the relationships that we built with David Cherry Andy and Christina Sharp and Dion Brand mm-hmm. through that course that we took with David um, just like just like Manny was saying mm-hmm. um, that you build these really close relationships with other black academics mm-hmm. in Canada because I don't know I don't think it's necessarily as small a community mm. as we talk about it being but it is a very close-knit one yeah and I think it's particularly in academia like thinking I know Kat and I have been thinking a lot about like the politics of citationality a lot mm-hmm. and something that we kind of wanted to bring to the issue and one of the conversations like we do talk about that but it's you know we read Christina Sharp's book in the wake on blackness and being oh, I've so said that wrong no is that, is that right yeah, okay. correct. I think you got it the pressure of like, <laughs> what if I get her work wrong? Like she's she my idol. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish. <laughs> Christina, I love you. Um, I now hope she's not listening because that's really embarrassing. Oh, um, maybe I could just tag her on Twitter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't need to. I was going to tweet her. <laughs> but yeah, like reading, we read her book in um, mm-hmm. David's class, and yeah, it's it's that respect that we see these academics have for each other, and then also on these personal levels as well. Is it's just so inspir- It's so inspiring. When she, Christina Sharp actually came to talk to our class one day because uh, she and Dion were on campus and we had just read her book. Um, and I was hesitant to ask a question because I was just so overwhelmed by the amazingness. Um, but she noticed that I looked like I was going to ask something. And she's mm. like, I think you have a question. What do you want to say? Yeah. And just that, like, care yeah. that, I don't know, having, like, a black professor make sure that my questions were being asked Mm -hmm. and like attending to that was so important and just not an experience that we usually get to have Mm -hmm. yeah yeah like I saw our friend Alicia tweet the other day about the experience of seeing Lawrence Hill talk and that Mm -hmm. she's never had the opportunity to see any any black person I think lecturing in front of her or like teaching her because like she so happened to like miss Fanuel before um who just came in like the year after he was hired at when she graduated and these things are so incredibly powerful, and I'm so one, I'm so happy to hear that you had such a wonderful experience with Christina being so generous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was like I, f- I feel a huge event in Vancouver um, with having Christina Sharp and Dion Brand um, and uh, David Cherandy in Vancouver. Uh, there's been uh, there's a lot of other exciting. Uh, talks coming up that I'd like to mention like Anita Hill is going to be coming to campus thank you Uh, for reminding me about that yeah I think that they've been also like not really advertising that event because they're probably worried about being too overwhelmed because they haven't posted anything on websites and it's also been through the law department right yeah being like um I don't know because UBC hosts some talks and events like that but it's not through them Mm -hmm. also Eve Ewing is coming that's also gonna be really exciting 
But you're talking about the politics of citation, so maybe that might be a bit of a, a segue into talking about the specific of the issue, because in the issue you do an interview and the politics of citation come, come up. So mm -hmm. I was wondering if you'd like to talk about how did the politics of citation come into play in the issue, but also I was really intrigued by what you end up titling the interview, which uh, comes from one of your interviewees, uh, which is that we are all conjurers, and sort of mm. thinking much more broadly about what does it mean to be black creators as opposed to making a dividing line between, say, I think, black academics and yes. um, black, crea black creatives, so to speak. So when Manny and I were going into this, like creating the questions that we wanted to have for the interview, we had chosen the term black creator because it seemed so expansive to us, like we imagined what could fit in to that as um, like not being a divide dividing line between artists and academics and activists. Mm. But I really appreciated the comments um, that Deanna Bowen made around that, that like there is still a lot of, there are lots of things tied up in the word creator that people think artistic, creative. Mm. So moving to Conjurer to really think about the something out of nothing bringing yeah. a thing into being. And yeah. something, I don't know how this just reminded me of, I don't know, something that you just said made me think of the labor that comes, even maybe comes with the word creator. Like mm -hmm. it, it almost focuses too much on something being produced. Whereas yes. now that I'm hearing the words said, just I think it's because you said the words so closely together, like creator mm -hmm. and conjurer. And conjurer kind of suggests like, what is productive is the making like does that make sense like the mm -hmm. the making itself not of a finalized product but like the conjuring in that is like the magic yeah because the conjuring is like a performance yeah right? so as opposed to i think she compares it as the creator being like godlike mm. right i think in the interview mm. which i think is such an interesting distinction so how how did you guys move from the the conversation that you witnessed being so generative to the opportunity to to do this special issue also. So that was actually something that David Cherry Andy uh, suggested we might want to do. Um, at the time, he had framed it as, um, like maybe we could do a few more interviews or like propose mm -hmm. a suite of essays to a journal. But then we ended up having the opportunity to do a full issue of the Capilano Review, which ended up shifting how we were imagining it a little bit because it was no longer going to be like a, sh a small collection of academic essays, mm -hmm. but instead creative works in response to this question or conjured works, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you answered that because I completely forgot that there was a point where we actually didn't know how this would be a thing. <laughs> we didn't know how, yeah. like what we were supposed to be envisioning from it. Uh, I think at one point we were just going to have we were just going to make available like the transcript from the work of words event mm -hmm. and then yeah then it became this so so what i also find interesting in that is like again there's a lot, been a lot of discussion about what what is the work of mentorship in academia and that sometimes uh one article i remember seeing distinguished the difference between the work of a mentor versus a sponsor being more active and that and someone like david charity said like he's doing that work of making sure that you guys have opportunities like it's not just about like dispensing advice but how do you truly help um, those you're mentoring become connected with opportunities. I think that David um, had possibly contributed at some point, I'm not positive on that, um, but he was friends with the previous editor, Andrea Actis, and he got us uh, in contact with her 
and um, yeah, she helped us sort out doing the special issue. So it's, a, I have to say, like an absolutely enthralling and beautiful issue. And I think I really loved like the, again, like the combination of like having academics, artists and creators. Mm-hmm. It feels like it really is continuing this tradition of like anthologies by women of color, and particularly like uh, black women that also have similar combinations. I'm thinking of like, uh, but some of us are brave, the British called my back and so forth. It's a start because it's, I think it's such, it's such a rich issue you put together. Would you like to walk through the issue or even the process of creating it? How did you draw in these creators? How did you create the prompt? How did you create the the editor's notes? What was it like also doing this work as junior scholars, getting connected with mm-hmm. such established artists and trying to figure out which voices you wanted to bring together? Yeah, it's yeah. a good question. We originally, we had different options presented to us as well. So Andrea Actis was a massive help, especially in this in this section of the, like in this process. Because, again, as junior scholars, we had, at least I personally, had no experience of editing an issue, so I didn't even know where to start. Um, and so Andrea really helpfully was like, okay, so the, this, these are our options. We could um, ask people, like do an open call and get people to submit things and then we choose from there, or we could frame it around a particular question. And we decided to go with the latter. So we, I don't know how we came up with the question, to be honest, but... I remember talking about um, like the title of the conversation between Dion, Christina, and David. Yeah. I use first names because we're all friends now. <laughs> um, the conversation was titled "The Work of Words." Yeah. I think in a conversation with David, actually, he had talked about this as like continuing the work, starting yeah, yeah. from that uh, conversation. So when we were talking about it, it was like, "What is that work? Mm-hmm. What do we want to be continuing? Mm-hmm. How are we continuing it?" And in terms of who ended up contributing, I think that there was a point where we were just really into it as a way to be like, who are some of the coolest black creators that we know? Who can we ask to be part of this? Mm-hmm. And just send emails to all of our faves. Yeah. <laughs> just everyone who we thought would have an interesting response yeah. and that we wanted to see in here. Yeah, and I think that I, what I love about the prompt as well is that people could have responded as people who also were present at the Work of Words event. Mm -hmm. But there's there's also, the question can also be answered, you know, having not been there and from a different perspective. So like that fluidity was something I think we really liked about it because we just also just didn't know how people would respond and how they interpreted what we even meant by work or words. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was was exciting actually to see what we then were starting to receive. And one of the things that was really important to us through that process was to get, um, like Maddie's already suggested, a range of voices, people Mm -hmm. who were there, people who weren't there. Um, And one of the things that we also really wanted to make sure that we were doing was contacting people who aren't usually asked to contribute to things, who might feel really brave and decide to. Like, there's, we have poetry and photographs from Joy Giampi, Mm -hmm. who is um, an undergraduate English student at UBC. Um, English and psychology but I I was so thrilled by the work that she submitted and we actually used part of her poem as the epigraph for the issue because it just fit so perfectly but like the juniorest of scholars Mm -hmm. aren't usually asked to contribute in this way so yeah it was great to be able 
to help mm -hmm. you. I was just going to point out, it's like um, David, Cherry, Andy looked out for you guys, but you're also sort of passing it on. And I think that it sort of indicates that even when we feel like we're on the bottom of the hierarchy, there's still mm -hmm. other people that we can help. It's and a like, good point. Yeah, like yeah. we do have more power than we think we do. Yeah. yeah. So what I also really liked with how you constructed the issue was the feeling that the way it was continuing the conversation mm -hmm. but between uh, Chris Christine Sharpke and Dion Brand and David Chirandi. I'm not a first name basis, so I'm not going <laughs> to even pretend. Because, um, of course, you have like excerpts from the interview, but then you have mm -hmm. the interviews that you do. You even have a segment from um, a question that was asked from an audience yeah. mem member, Fern, um, yeah. and sort of demonstrating, like, I think both the way that conversations, uh, of course, you're sort of attending to the embodied experience of like who was there, but the way that they sort of resonate outward mm -hmm. and build these different networks and different connections. Would you like to talk a little bit about how you see some, maybe some of the particular creative contributions as addressing aspects of that conversation or even like specifics in like uh, Dion Brand's work or like Christina Sharp's work? Mm. Like how do you see how some of these pieces fit? I think one of the things, one of the things that we received we literally read, and I mean, it became one of our starting points for our um, editor's note, but that was Ian Williams, one of his six poems. And it's almost unreadable in, in the sense that you need to just see it. And it, it's called Our Eyes Meet Across Oh, I love room. that one. And it, it is such a visual poem. Mm -hmm. And actually, one thing that I was thinking of as well is that, uh, to your previous question about bringing people to this issue, I think a lot of people don't necessarily see themselves as poets or as visual artists and you know in the way that an issue would like expect people to identify mm. um and so i think some like even so we had uh lilla bristol who i don't think necessarily per se would consider themselves uh a writer maybe mm -hmm. but but it was only because we reached out to them and invited them to do it that we received this amazing work from them I think like I, I wonder I sometimes wonder if unless people are given that opportunity they're like oh I can write something mm. and you know be part of something like this but sorry that was a segue back to your question I, yeah I think our eyes meet across yet another room was was a, a really good encapsulation of what that event was like like literally being around so many people black people and particularly just the and when I say black people I mean like the politics of blackness not just whether you are you know black <laughs> um and I think yeah the our eyes meet across yet another room is is such a great example of that so of course people can check it out in the actual issue but do you want to try and describe the, this concrete poem yeah I just I found all of his entries so incredibly witty yeah. and I think when I came to that one I sort of I think I sort of laughed aloud because yeah. it was just so so clever but yeah so this poem is essentially the words white repeated in a square. And then on the second line, there's an intervention, I want to, I want to call it, of an I, so the letter I. And then at the far right corner, bottom corner of the square, there's another I. And so it's literally the eyes meeting across a room of whiteness, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, oh, it's so brilliant because it's, like I said, it's like so visual, but it's also, you feel it. It's very visceral. No, yeah. you really feel it, that experience. It brings back memories, but it's also, like it's humorous as well. Like mm -hmm. sometimes when you're in those moments, you can be, you know, you can feel really sad, but sometimes it's hilarious. Like, ha, I'm the literal only black person in this room. Like mm -hmm. it can, it, it's, I think maybe it's a coping mechanism as well for us to laugh at those instances, but 
it you know we then connect with that other eye in that room mm-hmm. so it's, it's yeah it's really powerful it also reminds me of, a, of the way that jordan peele sort of subverts that moment of kinship in get out when chris is at the huge party mm-hmm. and he thinks that he sees like one other black person played by lakeith stanfield and he finds that mm, not the type of kinship he thought he was yeah. going to have yeah and it's funny because in that i i for some reason the eyes in that scene like really i don't know they, that just springs to mind like mm-hmm. how you, he's literally looking into like chris's chris yeah look is looking into his eyes and there's like they can't connect like there's mm-hmm. obviously because there's behind those eyes is not mm-hmm. not who he thinks it is mm-hmm. so yeah so yeah just i feel like this is sort of a good opportunity to just talk talk about things that you particularly like about different works mm-hmm. well I have already mentioned how much I loved Joy's contribution. Mm. Um, I thought that those photos were incredibly beautiful and I'm so happy that she submitted them to the issue. Um, the piece that Lucia Lorenzi and Julianne Okot bitek submitted as well was just, I'm still in awe of that piece. So it's a combination of a painting done by Lucia and a poem done by Julianne that are in conversation um, with the prompt, but also with each other. And it's, Julianne's poem is just incredible. Um, it goes from being very readable to almost entirely unreadable mm-hmm. with different um, sections of the text overlapping and conflicting with each other. Um, and I, I think that one of the things that it brings up for me is that feeling of so much excitement at that event, mm-hmm. like being so thrilled to see that. so many black scholars, mm-hmm. um, community members, all these people in that space and just the excitement and joy and trying to get out all of your feelings about yeah. it. Um, and yeah, just really representing the messiness of that joy was great. Mm-hmm. And one thing that Julianne said to us as well in some emails when we were talking about this was uh, she brought up how there's a section about the red ribbon that um, Dion Brand brought up. Mm -hmm. And I think that, so Julianne was really, uh, uh, really wanted to ensure that that red ribbon, those two words, and also part of the other words in that section of the poem uh, were visible. So as Mm -hmm. as Kat was saying, the poem gets more and more unreadable but it was important for her to have that moment of power I want to say so the the context is uh Dion Brand I think was reading through the archives and um heard about this young girl who escaped from her slave master and when she was running away or before she decided to leave she put a red ribbon in her hair. Mm. And Dion Brown spoke about that so beautifully as this moment of, you know... Joy in the joy, archive. Yeah, joy in the archive. And and I think, you know, just because this issue is about blackness doesn't mean it has to be miserable. <laughs> you know, it doesn't... It and, and that's not, you know, like... I think often when things are special issues about blackness it's often, you know, it's Black History Month and so therefore it's about remembrance about slavery or about, you know, all these traumas. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating because somehow that's the only way that blackness is able to be spoken about. 
and I think yeah with this issue issue in particular we really tried to make blackness about so much more than that so even I'm thinking about like our cover issue um and Marie Kiao's work is such a great example of that I recall um, in one of the poems, I can't remember by who, like they, they had the phrase black boy joy, mm-hmm. um, which which stood out to me. Joys, joys yeah. Um, and I feel like this also speaks to the the previous episode that we I recorded with Cavalina, which she said there's something similar that happens for represent, representation of ingenuity, that like you always mm-hmm. have to be miserable. Yeah. Um, but here it's so much about joy. And I think another really um, operative word and issue for you guys is love. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to talk a, lo- love to talk <laughs> a little bit about um, the coverage of Elle's um, film here, but also that love was one of the connecting um, themes that uh, Fanwell talks about when he's mm. when he's commenting on the conversation so how about we start with start with the film yeah so coming to love was a film that pedro and i made last year and it was it well it it's first started but it might the, the inspiration behind it came from me having read beloved by tony morrison and it's now become one of my favorite books, as I'm sure it's many, it's many people's favorite books, I'm sure. But there's the the passage that really frames coming to love is when um, Baby Suggs is in the clearing and she's telling everyone to love their flesh and to love their skin, and it's all about love, even though it's it's you know the the um, context and the conditions are so fraught, she still manages to bring it back to love, and that's something that I just think is so incredible and so that was that starts coming to love like those are the opening um the opening lines of the film read beautifully by our friend um aiden davis Mm. yeah (laughs) and then we and then we also got a lot of black people that we love into the film as well so love yeah in terms of love it was it's framed by this amazing piece about love, the beloved piece, but then also includes people that we love in the film, mm-hmm. including Kat. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I think that one of the things about um, that section of Julianne's poem that we were just talking about mm-hmm. with finding um, the red ribbon and finding joy in the archive um, and doing coming to love and using that long section mm-hmm. by Baby Suggs, that there's something about um, like we're talking about how when blackness gets brought up, we can only talk about like the pain of slavery or mm-hmm. downtroddenness or black death. Whereas those pieces are insisting that like black joy has always existed as well. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is very present and black joy and love is always there if we're mm-hmm. actually looking for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that so much of that love comes through in so many of the pieces mm-hmm. um, in here. Like, I think that Wade Compton's, um, oh, now I'm not going to remember what he's called it, um, the, the opera about James Douglas that mm-hmm. he's writing, um, that to me is showing like a form of love and care for blackness in BC, mm-hmm. that we talk about it like there's such a small black community in Vancouver, but insisting on the presence of blackness here, mm-hmm. um, that that's a form of love for me. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah, the love that Fanwell is talking about in his piece, that there's such a love in 
the um, the relationship between David Cherry, Andy, Dion Brand, Christina Sharp, their students, other Black mm-hmm. academics. It's all about that. Yeah, and I also want to mention Caleb Femi's work yes. as well. He is just so he's British. I don't know why I had to say it. I had to claim him as like <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> he is incredible. But there's what I think is also a really amazing connection to love here is that you know the idea of diaspora and how well Caleb's work led on to Joy's. Mm-hmm. And there's you know she her poem Moonlight her group of poems Moonlight Sunrise. It starts, I dream about black boys. And obviously his work is, is also about black boys um, and black men. And there is just this, the way that they are all conversing with each other is, I can only see that as love as well. Mm-hmm. I guess this is also a good segue to my next question, which is like, what has, what has the experience been like or what is the meaning for you as um, two people from uh, in the black diaspora from places other than Canada to come mm-hmm. here and do this work? and how that informed perhaps the creation of this piece, but also Mm. perhaps the the work that you're doing outside this. Mm. Well, um, I have lived in Canada for most of my life, Mm -hmm. um, many different parts of it at this point. Um, But I lived in BC when I was very little. We moved to Nanaimo before I was one um, and lived there until I was about seven. And then I moved back to BC to live in Vancouver um, almost four years ago now. So I think that there's something about BC that does feel like a place of blackness for me, even though Mm -hmm. I recognize that there's like a small black community here. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's something about like remembering my childhood um, in Nanaimo and my mom being so excited when another black family moved in like near the neighborhood that we were in mm-hmm. um, so that there's something about doing work on blackness here that feels very like right and mm-hmm. recuperative for me mm-hmm. in some ways um, like the work that Wade Compton is doing and just reasserting that like blackness is present in Canada and mm-hmm. it's present in this place. Mm. So I think that that was really important for me. Yeah, I think that's also why Coming to Love felt so necessary to make as well because yeah, like you said, Wade Compton stresses so much that blackness exists here, just FYI, you mm-hmm. know, but linking it back to Coming to Love, I guess. So Pedro and I have just submitted a grant application to make another film yay so, so hopefully exciting. we get that yeah but Wait, one thing are you gonna do this before you head back to England yeah okay <laughs> somehow I don't know okay <laughs> but one of the things that we really want to look at is what it's like to be a settler in Canada and particularly being a black settler and mm-hmm. how that obviously shifts the way we even think about blackness on these mm-hmm. lands and even how we think about land at all because it's I think, and this is something that I feel really lucky to have done Fanwell's class because this is something that we constantly, you know, were considering in the text we were reading and in the class discussions. But how do we, you know, respect that, the the importance of land and also understand how fraught the idea of land can be for black people? Mm -hmm. And also how do we think about our place as settlers 
on land that isn't ours and also how do we talk about racism on land that isn't ours mm-hmm. like how does how does that shift our politics or you know shift our solidarities and so yeah so we me and Pedro are hoping to make a, a new film that would be a, like a not a sequel as such but part of the coming to love series that would um the protagonist this time being a black Canadian woman and how she deals with her existence as mm. a black settler I think that'd be. I'm so looking forward to that because I think it's such an urgent conversation. So we're. I think we're alluding a, uh, in part to like, there's been discussions between Black Studies and Indigenous Studies mm-hmm. that sometimes seem incommensurable. Yeah. And here I'm particularly thinking, of course, um, of the sort of dialogue between Jared Sexton's essay mm-hmm. and um, Ico Day's. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember at the most recent American Studies Association, um, Tavio Nyong'o was, um, said something to the, the fact that he's working on um, having blackness and indigeneity together and the way that, like, um, just because, like, there may be struck I can't remember he phrased it so beautifully, like, there, despite, like, the structural antagonisms, mm-hmm. that doesn't actually mean incommensurability or yeah. something, something to that effect. Yeah. Um, and it seems like, uh, I know that Fanuel is also, I think, working on, on similar, similar topics. Um, one thing I, I've also been wondering, like, when will that movie become more widely available? Or are you, are you going to be looking, bringing it onto the festival circuit? Or, yeah, that is the aim. I we're actually going to uh, there's a conference in Kingston mm. that I'll be Pedro and I will be showing Coming to Love at. We submitted it. They had a, um, a performance stream, which was really cool, and I feel like conferences should do more often. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had a performance group. Uh, stream so we submitted it to that but yeah I, the problem is that we want to make it widely available we also want to submit it to festivals and if you want to submit it to festivals you can't have them on public websites oh, okay. which is so it just is so counterintuitive and seems to me like such snobbery you know like you can only screen something at a festival if it's only you know it's exclusively at mm-hmm. this festival so I'm kind of torn between that but once we've kind of accepted or you know come to either we're submitting it to festivals and we haven't gotten into any or we just can't be bothered to do it anymore then we'll make it available but it i it is yeah it is because of that um the festival thing that we can't make it widely available but hopefully one day it will be Mm -hmm. um so you alluded to this a little bit but would you like to talk about the the cover art for the issue yes so much yeah well marika yao is a student at DRSJ. She's a part of the new cohort, so she's in her first year. And and in fact, we were really torn for the cover issue. I don't know if we want to bring that up, but we there's Caleb had has a, a stunning image in the issue um, that we really wanted to make as the cover image. And mm-hmm. it is the image of this black man sitting and he looks I don't even want know if I want to describe how he looks. He looks amazing. <laughs> um, but due to issues with mm-hmm. color and other issues that maybe we don't want to talk about, but yeah, in the end we couldn't have it as the cover art, much to our dismay. But nonetheless, we found Marika's work and it almost, you know, it it just it worked so well and the fact that it's so her work is she works in sculpture and works with cracks and pieces that are broken and put back together and are still nonetheless beautiful there's something about that like 
just working with cracks and working with broken things that is just is is so beautiful yeah um i think that i was really fascinated by her work because of um there's something about it that's like you can definitely see the cracks mm-hmm. and the pieces have been broken and mm-hmm. reassembled but it looks whole in a certain yeah. way um, and I think that that was really it's tied to what we've been talking about this whole time in terms of the way the blackness is discussed mm-hmm. um, that there's something really beautiful there that often gets ignored for mm-hmm. the cracks mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I was just so in love with all of the work that she submitted to us. <laughs> yeah, we really struggled to like really, choose <laughs> between really them. Really did. Yeah. So I think another thing that feels really important with the special issue you did is in terms of like what it means as an intervention. And here I'm particularly thinking of the contributions from Sonnet Labé, uh, which is a, a series of like responses to Shakespeare's famous um, series of sonnets. Uh, which I thought were both like provocative and critical and funny and beautiful all at the same time. So how do you see the work that you've brought together here as, say, an intervention into the conversation around Hamlet? Because that, I think, is a particularly has been a contentious debate that perhaps not a lot not of our listeners have heard about. I'm so glad that you brought up Sonnet's work because mm. I just want to talk about that briefly. Mm. Um, so Sonnet's project that she's working on right now is a book called Sonnet Shakespeare Um, and we were so lucky to get um, four of the pieces that she has created for that as part of her submission Um, and it's about erasure through overcrowding so each of the poems in this series um, has all of the letters from a Shakespearean sonnet in order and then they're overcrowded with her own language. Oh, um, I didn't even pick up on that. That's yeah, how could you? No, that's yeah. totally it. That yeah. it's, it's such an incredible system of erasure yeah. uh-huh. that if you don't know that the poem is there, it's just completely subsumed by mm-hmm. her words. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's something about that, I don't know, like reclamation of a form that you have been told does not belong to you and being like, I'm going to make it belong to me in this very particular way. Like, I'm just, I'm so in awe of that project. And I think, I think there's something to be said about the fact that, so I'm reading a lot of Black British cultural studies at the moment. And one thing that I'm, one thing that keeps coming up is the fact that particularly, I mean, I mean, any Caribbean well, mo- many of the Caribbean um, islands were obviously colonized by Britain. And as a result, culturally, and I'm sure Kat knows this far too well, but as a result, British education, all the, you know, all the poetry we, we would read in the Caribbean, all of the, you know, with the, the Caribbean, parts of the Caribbean are British. And early on after, um, particularly after World War One and World, World War Two. Uh, and with changing immigration um, legislations, um, if you were a what what was the language they use? Things like, um, oh my god, what is it? Not colonization. Colony. No. Territory. British. British. Not Check imperialism. It. No. Oh. Huh. I don't know what kind of mm. word you're going for. Like people from Commonwealth, the, yeah, like okay. the Commonwealth, no, 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 not that okay, Commonwealth, no. and like, oh, anyways, 
But like, if you were an imperial subject, then you were British, and you could you have you could get a British passport, blah blah blah. And so, but I mean, on the one hand, people forget about that, and obviously, it's really contentious in the UK because when Caribbean people literally arrived in England and were like, "Yo, we're British, we're here," mm. people were obviously like, "What? No, you're not. British is whiteness, right?" And so. Yeah. Actually, you know, having like there's um, parts of um, like some of the, I'm thinking of some of the words that she uses. So, like warring lion makes like observation, but make is m e k. So it's not m a k e. It's you know the way that a Caribbean person might say make, for example. And like having an intervention in terms of language, and also an intervention in terms of like British history and who can mm. who lays claim to Shakespeare. And Shakespeare isn't just this British product. Like, if I mean, if it is a British product, then therefore a Caribbean person could also mm-hmm. take hold of it. So yeah, I think it's because I'm reading a lot of Black British cultural studies that it's it's making me appreciate Sonnet's work in this different way as well. And yeah, I'm just I'm so impressed. Yeah, but you're just I have, have you read Andrea Levy's Small Island? Yes. Oh, I love that book so I much. Love that encounter. It's been a long time since I read it, but it, it left an impact on me. Mm-hmm. No, I think, like, yeah, talking about the, the afterlife of empire yes. is so interesting because I feel like that's, like, in what's now called the Commonwealth, like, similarly, the curriculum in, say, in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, I was talking to another Fred Cheater the other day who was from Kenya and talking about how, like, she's like, well, I think she was complaining at one point. It's like, we learn Latin in school, exactly, right? Yeah. So this is Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's funny how how much that shapes us and mm-hmm. it's something that I, that I think about quite a bit as someone who grew up learning and memorizing Wordsworth um, because that's what my, was important to like my grandpa mm-hmm. and that being representing what poetry was and that was the only type of poetry that sort of existed mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure at that point that I thought that po- I liked poetry at all. Mm. <laughs> so wow this is such an amazing project. I I think that one of the really important things for me um, as someone who took a number of like can-lit specialized courses in my undergrad. Um, you can't see the air quotes that you That's true, you can't. Courses that were considered under the like can-lit course codes and things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that my professors did a great job of showing that there is so much more to can-lit than just like white settler writers Mm -hmm. um but to be able to put out an issue of like a canadian-based creative and literary journal that is primarily black writers from canada um it was really important to me to kind of i don't know just have a way to recognize that there are so many incredible black writers, artists, thinkers here. Um, Yeah, because I think that we do often think of blackness as elsewhere in Canada, Mm -hmm. and blackness is not elsewhere, it's right here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, definitely that's the sort of Canadian moral exceptionalism I find tends to be the case that, you know, race, and by that they usually mean just blackness, is um, an American problem, and therefore we're we are good because we didn't have any of those issues. Mm-hmm. I actually remember I had a, I was with a number of other postdocs and none of them are from Canada. 
and they had hadn't heard at all or didn't know at all that slavery ever existed in Canada. Wow. And so I gave them like a little um, historical overview for them. Nice. Uh, That's yeah. a lot of labor on your part, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was actually that, that was actually like really easy because they were like, like they were very receptive to it. Mm -hmm. um, that is always yeah. Yeah, I think that there's definitely. Um, so this is going back slightly in history now, but in the <laughs> last, maybe they're still around, I don't know. In the last couple of years, there have been um, like Canadian U-Haul trucks that have oh, yeah. little fun facts about oh, yes, Canadian I've seen history. Those. Yeah. And there's one about slavery Oh. that says like, oh, I'm not gonna remember the exact wording, so don't quote me on this, but it's something to the effect of like, oh, Canada abolished slavery so much before the U.S. did, and we were an important stop on the Underground Railroad, mm -hmm. which just totally ignores the fact that slavery couldn't flourish in Canada in the same ways because we couldn't have plantations. Like, there are so many things around mm -hmm. it that weren't just, mm -hmm. like, Canadians were benevolent and mm -hmm. wanted to mm -hmm. save all of those sad black folk. Like, mm -hmm. no, like, slavery was here, and it took a different form, but we're not, I don't know exempt from that history. Yeah, I remember seeing a similar essay to that effect in The Guardian, but uh, for, for the British that retroactively people are only claiming like, oh yes, they're the great abolitionists um, mm -hmm. who, who did all the work, Wilberforce and so forth. And so people are, are being taught in the system like, oh yes, we British were the ones who abolished slavery, not mentioning that, you know, mm -hmm. they were actually a huge part of <laughs> the reason why that existed as the trade. Yeah, that we sort of just bring up perhaps the specters of the past just to be like, we, we're over it and now yeah. we're so much better than the U.S. And I feel like it always comes back to to that type of comparative framework. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, another thing that I've been reading about is, so when um, there was a report, I think, I can't even remember when it was, but there was a report in the U.K. looking into racism, essentially. And it was I think it was colloquially called the Parekh report P-A-R-E-K-H I can't remember its formal name mm -hmm. but uh, one of the things it was urging the UK to do was you know like not claim in the positive affirmative way its history but recognize that it you know isn't this at least um pleasant past that we often like to think of British history you know particularly we mostly study World War Two. we don't and, and we study it in a very geographically British-centric way, so we don't think about how we, you know, used um, imperial troops to be on the front line, you mm -hmm. know, to serve on the front line. So we have a very interesting way of looking back at our history. But um, one thing that came out of this report were loads of criticisms um, saying that this what this report was trying to like rewrite history. Which is just so bizarre to me because you're not rewriting history if history is already there, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's it's mm -hmm. already it's not a rewriting if that's just what the history is. But there seems to be such this weird, like, refusal to to consider any other alternative history yeah. if it's not glorifying. Yeah. Like, rewriting perhaps insofar as, like, there were um, textbooks that were written that were very, very limited in scope. And so, yes, be a necessary rewriting in that respect, but not mm. rewriting events. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important point. Mm -hmm. And this even just think, talking about history makes me think of Jay Lern's work and also makes like reminds me of what we were talking about earlier with people not necessarily thinking of themselves as artists and one thing that we Kat and I well Kat and I both have tattoos and I think that maybe is why we felt 
the need to want to include a tattoo artist yeah, in this issue. Yeah, that was so interesting. I did, yeah, because I, um, I, I feel like you that. never, people never really consider tattooists as artists, I don't think, unless you are, unless you have tattoos and you are a tattoo artist, then you might do. Yeah. But outside of that, I think it's, it's quite unpopular. Because you have some sort of colonial history, right? With Yeah, with and I think that people are getting into um, tattoo artists work more on like Instagram. Mm -hmm. Like Instagram is a huge platform for tattoo artists. Yeah. Um, but so many artists' page will exclusively feature very light-skinned people with yes. tattoos. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. It's yeah. I, I it's so rare to find a black tattoo artist in particular. And I, even when we when I first got in contact with Jalen, I remember being like. I literally put into Instagram like hashtag black tattoo artists and then you just get pictures of every tattoo ever that's been in black ink. Like yeah. it's literally yeah. 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 like black work. Yeah, you of. don't actually find yes. black tattoo artists. Um, mm. But what I love about her work is it, you know, celebrates black. I mean, it celebrates blackness, but it also celebrates specific people. So there's the Josephine Baker line drawing. Shea Coulee, who was yeah. contestant last season's RuPaul's Drag Race. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's just so good. <laughs> that was so awesome. And I, I love that you, you thought to in, include her work in this. There's just something so wonderful, especially about um, those two pieces, mm -hmm. the Josephine Baker and the Shea Coulee, that mm -hmm. it's like done in that kind of pinup style that you yeah. only ever really see white women drawn yeah. in. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think that like, yeah, when you imagine the like, up tattoos mm -hmm. um they're often like kind of Betty Boop-esque yeah um so mm -hmm. to actually have these that style of tattooing done yeah. but featuring black women was really yeah. wonderful yeah and as a reminder that black people exist in that era there's this exactly. meme that I really love about the 1950s where people are like oh I like the the quote is like something like oh I wish we could go back to those days and it has like these pictures of Lisa Rockabilly like white hipsters dressed up and it's like well we like something like we still have uh, milkshakes and racism so. yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> that's yeah. true and another thing is how beautifully she captures like black sexuality without it being often we see black sexuality portrayed in disgusting ways and it's and it's she obviously manages to do it in such a gentle but also incredibly sexy way <laughs> it's yeah. a really hard balance to get and also the black love piece it's two women hugging or embracing and they look like they're drawn naked so there's it's also just a great queer piece as well i think i interpret it as um yeah. yeah and focusing on like a black queer erotics rather yeah. than a black fetishism exactly it's just something that was really important for us in terms of what we were featuring in the mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. So what would you like people to come away with from the issue? And also, what are you guys coming away with as junior scholars who got the opportunity to do this work? I think um, I want to start with the second part of that question. So what am I taking away from doing this work as a junior scholar? And I think there's like Manny, you already mentioned that we had no idea really what we were getting into with editing an issue. Um, and just having this experience has taught me so much about, I don't know, just what's involved in this process that mm -hmm. I don't think I could have ever learned from someone just telling me. No, that if no. someone had kind of gone mm -hmm. through the steps or I had read about someone else's experience, mm -hmm. um, 
yeah so I just think there were a lot of lessons involved in it um and I mean one of the difficulties that was really useful for me in a lot of ways was just learning what it means to center blackness in a journal that is not on blackness Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. as far as I know none of the people that we were primarily working with in terms of making this issue happen were black Mm -hmm. um I think some of the contributing editors are black but um not the people that we were working with directly so yeah learning how to navigate that was definitely an experience um yeah that's what I want to say about that what about the first question Kat <laughs> oh I was going to come back to it I didn't know if you wanted to say anything oh, on yeah. that one it seems like it's okay she answered that part of it no. so that's your turn no I actually I actually don't have anything to add to be honest okay. I completely echo what Kat said and yeah I feel really fortunate that we were given we're trusted with this task to be honest mm-hmm. because I yeah. feel like if Perhaps they didn't know how little we knew. <laughs> but it, I like, I now can moving forward can say that I have this and now have this experience and want to do this again. Like this, yes. you know, I've I've learned so much from it and now I actually want to continue this work. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, yeah. And then for what I want people to take away, um, I. I think that it's a good sign that, Zion, you have brought up how much love there is in it because yeah. that's what I want people to feel yeah. after reading it. Like, how much love is going on in this conversation around the work for black creators now. Mm-hmm. Um, that this isn't... That there is tension and that people have different ideas around it. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes those ideas are very different, mm-hmm. but that it's still a loving conversation around what our work is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm was so beautifully said I didn't even want to add yeah I again I agree and I think I mean I think we say it so well to pat ourselves on the back in a weird way in the the editor's note like taking you know following from Caleb's poem um, about supernovas and how he I won't go into the context of the poem but um we along that theme of, of stars and supernovas we end by saying this issue is dedicated to those living multiplying dreaming dancing supernovas and I think I, I actually love that all of those words are verbs and because there's something so alive about them mm-hmm. and it is I think it is about love and like I don't even want to say perseverance because that almost already assumes that it's something's a struggle in a way but that we are living and multiplying and dreaming and dancing mm-hmm. I think this also, um, to the opportunity that you guys are giving, comes to this, uh, back to this idea of mentorship or sponsorship, which is that it's not that you guys, um, you guys always had the capacity and ability to do that, but sometimes, like, especially early in our careers, we don't realize that we have that ability. And so we really need other people to recognize that for us so we can see our, see that we're able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I could think that, like, personally for me, that has been true, that there's been so many opportunities that I've had or, like, the work that I've done with advocacy was just because someone forced me to do them, actually. Yeah. Like, either they forwarded, people forwarded me an email mm-hmm. or they nominated me for something, and then I was like, okay, well, I have to do this now, so mm-hmm. I'm responsible for it. And then these things end up being really important for me, and I felt like I did good things, but I would have not realized that I had that in me at all. Mm. 
Uh. I never would have considered this as a thing that I could do, let alone trying to pitch it somewhere and make it happen without Mm -hmm. David's help. But Mm. yeah, having that senior mentorship and support as like young women of color in the Mm -hmm. academy is so crucial. Yeah. And so I was also going to say that, of course, um, doing special, uh, doing the work as the editors of special edition, of course, doesn't count the same way that a peer-reviewed publication does. But there, I think that has a different type of, of power. There's a type of reputational currency that comes with it. It's about building your networks. Um, I think it does say something about the work that, that you're able to do. And it's. I'm really glad that David gave you guys that opportunity. And also, I think another thing to point out is that we hear so much nowadays, or like a recognized rather, it's been recognized more widely because we've always known this, that like <laughs> people of color and uh, particularly women of color have always been called upon to do excess service work. Mm. And now we're trying to recognize that more, but also being paid for it is important. Mm, yes. And I was really happy that like, um, that was another thing that David did. He didn't just give you this opportunity and ha- the work, but also made sure that you guys were compensated in some way. Yeah. And it's in no way something that, I, I think that sometimes people try to stigmatize mm-hmm. stigmatize that mm-hmm. um, as like, oh, you're just being selfish. You should do it for for love or something yeah. like that. Like that, and that's but that is the same excuse that ends up devaluing yeah. the work of women of color so often. Yeah. I think there were so many, just like really wonderful things about this experience mm-hmm. in terms of it being an opportunity. I truly believe that if we had said that sounds really great, but we just don't have time for it, that it wouldn't have been held against us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's a lot of times in academia where you were offered something as a really great opportunity to gain experience and you feel like you have to take it, that it's not an option. Mm -hmm. You're having this work kind of forced on you um, under the, I don't know, the heading of experience and passion and it'll be good for you Mm -hmm. like an internship almost yeah Yeah. so I think that having that knowing that it was optional and still wanting to do it um was just a really nice thing like I wouldn't have felt bad if I said I couldn't do it Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm kind of like rambling to reiterate that point but there's just something that was really valuable in that because it wasn't the feeling of extra work that I had to take on, mm-hmm. I guess. So having that being very clear, um, David's insistence that we were compensated for this yeah. work, um, having support throughout all of it, mm-hmm. not just being told, go do this mm-hmm. with no guidance mm-hmm. was really valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it was presented as an actual choice that respected your agency yeah. and sort of helped to make up for like, even though you're junior, it wasn't like this unequal power dynamic, whereas trying to compensate for that as much as possible, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you guys? Uh, you've alluded it to a little bit with the next film project, but uh, what would you like your listeners to know that you're interested in working on or where you hope to go from here? Oh, uh, well, I have a conference paper coming up on uh, queer, black, masculinity and mm. moonlight will be nice. presenting at Congress, so that's exciting. And then just trying to read and enjoy <laughs> my summer before the PhD. Yeah, yeah same. I'm going to be going to Congress as well with Kat. Um, I can't even remember what my paper's called, but 
It's going to be great, hopefully. It's so <laughs> it, this will be my first conference where I'm actually, well, A, my first conference, although I'm going with Pedro to uh, the Undisciplined Conference to screen Coming to Love, I feel like it's, it feels different because I won't be presenting a paper. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this will be my first conference and thanks Kat for bringing it to my attention. Um, so there's that. And then also I'm working on the Critical Ethnic Studies Association Conference. Oh, it's yes. happening in June. So everyone should come to that because that's going to be amazing. We've got Sadia Hartman. Oh God. Yeah, we've, everyone, I, like Jared Sexton. Um, this is the one you are like, oh no, now I have to name everyone. But like loving sections. Um, we've got like, so we've got a range of like activists and from Vancouver. We've got um, folks from the US. And yeah, it's going to be big. So if you can come, um, if you are able to, there's a financial commitment to it. But if you can please do. And I think, yeah, same, just reading, somehow getting my thesis done. Thank you so much for being able to join me today. Um, It's a pleasure being here and being able to hear a little bit more about this amazing issue that you guys put together. I'm sure, listeners, this will not, you'll probably be hearing about many other amazing things that Kat and Elle will be doing in the future, and you should just be lucky that we got the chance to talk to them now. (laughs) 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 I think a way to think about it. Um, But again, I'm Dr. Zainyo, representing Humanities. Thanks so much for listening. Um, If you like this, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts, and take care of yourselves, and see you next time. Bye.